all farmers want to make their farm more profitable, safer, and a happier, healthier place to be. Every single farmer I know, they'll do anything to do that as long as it doesn't come at the cost of the farm. Because at the end of the day, we as farmers have to put food on our table. We have to put our kids through college. We've got to take care of the farm. The farm has to sustain itself. And so the biggest and, and, and most common language of, of agriculture is profitability. Before any world-changing innovation, there was a moment, an event, a realization that sparked the idea. Before It Happened is a show about that idea. Each week, we take a deep dive into a singular light bulb moment that inspired the visionaries to push forward and change our lives. I'm your host, Donna Laughlin. Nearly 20 years ago, I launched a public relations firm with the sole purpose of helping visionaries tell their stories to the world. Now, two decades later, I want to share those stories and more with you. This podcast takes you on a journey before it happened with the innovators who imagine and are still imagining the future. Ever since I was a child, I was curious about so many things. I spent hours in the garage at science fairs, sifting through popular science, popular mechanics, and pretty much any journal I could get my hands on, exploring and discovering how things work. From transportation and AI to just about anything you can put in your home, office, or pocket. On this show, you'll hear from the innovators themselves as they tell their stories of how they brought those visions to life. Grab your passport and let's go on a journey together. In 1966, a California winemaker named Robert Mondavi left the winery he ran with his family to launch his own brand. Along with his sons, Michael and Tim, he founded the Robert Mondavi Winery. Since then, the family has become nothing short of American wine royalty, making the Mondavi name synonymous with California's Napa Valley region and recognized internationally. Today, Mondavi's grandchildren continue the family winemaking tradition. But while Robert's goal was to change how American wine grapes were perceived around the world, one of his grandsons, Carlo Mondavi, is trying to change how they're grown. And while he is still very involved in the family business, he isn't just concentrating on grapes. Carlo has become a leading voice on the future of sustainable agriculture. He is an advocate for and a strict practitioner of organic and biodynamic farming. And more recently, he's been instrumental in helping to bring Monarch Tractor, the world's first smart electric tractor, to market. I sat down with Carla recently to discuss winemaking, the future of farming, and how he's building on his family's agriculture legacy by helping to change the way we grow our food. So Robert Mondavi's parents came to the U.S. from central Italy. Robert himself was born in Minnesota before relocating to Lodi, California in his teens. But Carlo, like his father and siblings, were born in the Queen of the Valley Hospital, right in the heart of Napa Valley. Not surprisingly, he grew up working in the family business. His first official job on the Mondavi Ranch was sweeping the barn and cleaning tractors. And each fall, he joined the family in the vineyards picking grapes during harvest. 
So, Carla, did you realize how important your grandfather was? Well, I think so. My grandfather, it was incredible. He was the most humble, sweet, kind, hardworking, compassionate, and and loving person and a great, uh, continues to be a great inspiration for my brother and I with Rain and certainly on a personal level. But no, in Napa, we were kind of in this very small farming community. Went to a school where the entire school was 300 individuals and we all worked one way or another in either farming in the vineyards or in the cellar or in the winemaking. And so we, we, I never knew. And I don't think that also I have to say my grandfather didn't begin Robert Mondavi until he was 53 years old. And so even though my family has been making wine for a hundred years, just the challenges that we have faced, you know, falling down, getting back up. Part of the challenges was in the early days was prohibition and so it kept us very humble and there was never this, you know, just long drawn out success story. It was, it was a lot of falling down and getting back up and dusting ourselves off. And so there was always this kind of startup. And I think also just maybe being a part of the recession when he was, he was born in 1913. And so having that connection back to my great grandparents and the challenges that they faced when they migrated over from Italy, it kept him, him humble, kept my family humble. And so I never had this feeling of, wow, we have this big successful business. It always felt like we were doing well and we should be happy that we can put food on our table and that we can go on a nice vacation here and there. But that was about the extent of it. And also in the Valley, Many of the kids, they were in the in the wine business at one way or another as well. So that community, it was a tight community. But um, I didn't really realize the impact my grandfather had on the food and wine community until I began traveling. And you know, I went to college in France, spent some time in Italy, and seeing they knew of kind of what he was up to over there was was really one of the moments where I said, well, this, my, my grandfather has really, really put in a lot, and my father have put in a lot, and my uncle, my family have been able to be successful on a global basis, but it, it's a very, a family story is unique in that regard. I think every family that's been successful has a unique story, but we've certainly, it wasn't apparent growing up in, in Napa. Yeah. Well, farmer's life is a pretty humbling life, right? I mean, you really, so the soil and the weather and, and all the elements are just so harmonic and, you just give grace every day, right? And, and like people realize how much agriculture is, you know, it's a, it's a labor of love and it's a gift at the same time. And those, those two have to work together, right? You just can't just pray that you're just going to have a great crop year or a great wine. There's just so much. That's part of what I love about the the wine business also is every season there's a new job. Every season has new nuances within it. And that ultimately lends itself to a unique bottle of wine that is captured those 365 days of all the decisions you make, all the work that you're putting in is captured and, and you're able to reflect upon that. And so farming is incredibly humble as a winemaker. If I'm lucky, you know, there's that idea of you get 40 tries in the wine business. We go a little bit, a little bit longer just because my grandfather was sitting at the table with my father in his eighties and talking about the wine. So he was a part of those vintages for a long time. Carla took an unexpected detour away from the wine business when he fell in love with snowboarding. And for several years, he traded his family's California vineyards for some of the world's most challenging slopes as he competed professionally throughout his twenties. But it wasn't necessarily a popular move with his family. 
So at what age did you decide to become a snowboarder? And so what age was that? And what was your decision to do that versus stay at the homestead and make wine? I knew from a young age that I wanted to make wine. And it was literally around that that kind of seven to eight-year-old age when I was starting to kind of get out into the field, go out into the the barn and work with this guy, Randy, who is our mechanic and managed the tractor yard there. It was an incredible individual and taught me so much. And from there out into the vineyards, and I knew I wanted to do that. My, My grandfather, I didn't know exactly what it was that he was doing at that age, my father and my grandfather, but there was a twinkle in their eye they talked about work and what we were doing at the dinner table always. And, and so there's always this, I didn't know exactly what they did, but I knew I wanted to do that because they were so passionate about it and they loved it. And then I just grew up in California. So skateboarding was something that I was able to do from a young age. And on the Sonoma coast, we have wonderful little surf spots barrier. To, the fear of entering the water there is a little bit greater because it's very cold water and the it's a very powerful ocean. But I fell in love with that and tiptoed my way into surfing. Snowboarding came a little bit later. I actually skied, but I knew I wanted to snowboard. I just, the first time I snowboarded, I just absolutely got destroyed thinking that I could go do everything because I surfed and skateboarded. And then uh, I I went to a school in Colorado where there was, during the wintertime, a snowboard team. And so that was where I started to snowboard and started doing USASA events and did fairly well in those and ended up getting discovered. In Colorado, was that college or high school? It was actually a boarding school that I went to there, Colorado Rocky Mountain School. And what did your family think of your snowboarding career? I think, I know my father was so incredibly busy with work at the time. He was always very proud and very supportive. And my mom as well. But I think, my, you know, five kids, busy, busy family. One moment where I look back and I say, wow, that, you know, I think, and this was kind of on the last years that I, because I, I really did want to get and focus on the wine business. And then all of a sudden I had won a few, a series of events and, and there was op- offers on the table, but they were like a little bit more bigger commitments on my side in terms of time and all that. And I looked at myself and I said, do I want to be a 30 year old and join into the winemaking thing that I knew I was really passionate about professionally? So I had this moment of time. Do I want to sign these contracts and, and snowboard for the next three years and commit to these companies and help them build their business? Or do I want to focus on the wine business and learning more about the farming on a professional level and the, and the science and art of, of winemaking? And so that was the moment where I decided to treat snowboarding as something that I could be passionate about and enjoy and kind of do on my own time and, and focus on, on the wine business. So that was like 2002? That was 2003, 2004. Around that time, Robert Mondavi took the whole family on a tour of some of Europe's greatest wine regions. Carlo went along and while visiting the Burgundy region of France, got the shot of inspiration he was looking for when he met winemaker Anne-Claude Laflave, who was a pioneer in the area of biodynamic farming. Carlo, what did meeting Anne-Claude Laflave do for your career? Oh my gosh. She's one of my heroes and inspirations in wine. I met her in 2002 on a trip to Bordeaux and Burgundy to visit the first growths and the Grand Cruz. And then we went over to Italy and visit the great wineries of Italy with my grandfather. And he, on this trip, wanted to show my brothers and sisters and I what he saw in 1962 
that gave him this fire in his belly that said, we have the soil, we have the climate, we have the know-how to make wines that can sit in the company of the great wines of the world. We just have to invest in the vineyards and invest in the cellar. And that was at a time when if you said there was great wine coming out of California, people would have called you crazy. Um, the only place great wine was coming out of was Bordeaux, Burgundy, Champagne, and Italy, really France and Italy. And so my grandfather was ridiculed, but he wanted to show us that he wanted to take us on the trip that he went on that changed his life. And it did. It changed my life. And along the trip from Bordeaux and into Burgundy, in Burgundy, there was a day that changed my life. And it started with Anclade Lefleve in the morning. And Anclade, I always say that the women of Burgundy changed the way that Burgundy farms and in a way changed that the, the way that that the wine world farms. Anclade Lefleve at the time had already converted all of Domaine Lefleve, which is one of the great Chardonnay producers in the world of wine. They're out of Pouligny Montrachet, which is one of the great villages within the Cote d'Or. So the Cote d'Or is this valley that creates Burgundy. And, and the Cote de Bonne is really known as where a lot of the great wines of the Cote d'Or come from. And Pouligny Montrachet is where Domaine Lefleve is. And we began that day by walking the vineyards. And I just remember her passion for the earth and for the for picking up the dirt and, and the limestone salt rocks and talking about the farming and talking about this connection to the land and talking about biodynamics. And biodynamics at the time was a crazy idea. There was a lot of like mysticism around it. Is it witchcraft? You know, what is biodynamics? What is biodynamics actually? And how does it work? Yeah, biodynamics, it's an incredible philosophy, farming philosophy and practice. And it was created by Rudolf Steiner. He also created the Waldorf schools and he was this Austrian innovator, an incredible individual, but he always thought outside of the box. And biodynamics takes into, into account the cosmos. So it takes into account all of the, the different gravitational poles that the you know multiverse have on earth. And then how do we do that with farming? And then it takes into account animals and it takes into account using homeopathic remedies versus chemical remedies. So it's a way to, and it, and it all ties back to having a healthy soil, protecting the soil microbiome to help create a healthier system that at the end of the day is farming in line with nature. And I still think I look at biodynamics as one of the all-time great farming practices. But I think for me, the holy grail of farming is permaculture farming, which is kind of in line with biodynamics. A lot of the things biodynamic, biodynamics preaches, permaculture also preaches, which is the idea that the farm should essentially sustain itself. And you shouldn't be dependent on things from outside. So you should create a culture within the farm that if there is some sort of negative element on the farm, you have a beneficial flower that brings in a beneficial insect and kicks it out. It, it stresses biodiversity so that no one thing can dominate and that there's an ecosystem that naturally sustains itself. So what else do you remember from that day with Anclade? So I remember just her connection to the earth and then her wines were fabulous. And her and Lalu Bislois, I think, are two of the big, big beacons of light that said, we have to take care of our, our planet. We have to take care of the earth. And, and in that way, we this, if we have healthy soils, we can make a healthier plant and then in turn make a, a more delicious and enjoyable glass of wine. You know, and she, she was also very progressive, by the way. You know, biodynamics is, I think, if you think about farming, we've gone through this incredible, there's been like three 
real big revolutions in farming. And the big biggest revolution that has really rocked the boat recently is the green revolution, which really should be dubbed as the chemical revolution, which began in the 1920s and really took off in like, you know, post-World War II in like 45. And that was just the chemical era of farming and science. And science was great. On the winemaking side, it, it allowed us to understand what Britannomyces is, what Eniococcus is, how to understand the microbiology of what's going on in the cellar. But on the farming side, we went down this kind of whatever chemicals that a chemical company can put out that'll help you are be- is going to make you know a better product. And Enclave of Flev identified that very early on and was talking about it and, and implementing it into her farm as one of the first individuals to do it. And I have always held her at the highest esteem and always have looked at her as one of my great influences of wine. And one of my personal goals is to make organic farming the new conventional and to be able to take a big step away from a lot of the synthetic chemicals that are used on farms and and get back to a place where we're, we're using all more naturally formed and ideally get away from all chemicals altogether. I mean, uh, farmers that do use herbicides don't want to use herbicides. They use it just because it's economically superior right now. Whereas if you have a technology like Monarch Tractor, you make farming without herbicides economically superior. And so no farmer is going to go out and want to spray herbicides. If you can make it so you don't need fungicides, would you use fungicides? And so then how do you make all of these really beautiful, elegant ways of of farming economically superior to conventional? How do you get away from synthetics? And how do you get away from even some of these? Because not to say organic is holier than thou. Organic is not perfect. It's far from perfect. But how can we take steps forward along that journey? So what did you bring back from this European trip back to California and start educating and applying? Was it as disruptive in California as it was in Europe? What I saw in Burgundy the passion and love for it and the humility and the humbleness of, of, of the families was incredible. But I have to say that it was a chance for me to get outside of the echo chamber that was my family's winery because I was very fortunate to be in such a good echo chamber because what my grandfather and my father had created and my uncle had created at Robert Mondavi was so special. My family has been farming organically since the 70s. We're four generations of not using herbicides. My dad... He tells me a funny story. Well, there's a bunch of funny stories he has, but one of one of the stories was that our vineyards have always been, you know, we've always had a cover crop. We've always had uh, grasses growing. And one day my my dad got a phone call from my grandfather and he was standing there with a friend of of ours. And my grandfather said, Tim, why do we have grasses in our field? And this this field that my friend has here is perfect with no grasses in it. And my dad says, because we're farming in a sustainable way. We're not using herbicides. We're not using, you know, in a a natural way. I think what he called it at that time was natural farming. I I think organic had yet to be used in in the kind of market. And uh, my grandfather just said, okay, good job. Keep it up. (laughs) And hung up. But that was at a time when vineyards were meant to look perfectly. If you saw a weed growing in the vineyard, it was like you were a bad farmer. And so everything needed to be perfectly manicured. Everything needed to look absolutely like that someone went through and basically fluffed the soil to make the soil look good. So that time is we still are suffering from a bit of that that mentality of perfectness in farms. And 
when you talk to great chefs, they say some of the best, most flavorful tomatoes are not the perfect looking tomatoes. Or if you, a great example of this is, is Domaine Loire. When you go into Burgundy and you see, or Ponte Canet in Bordeaux, uh, biodynamic farm uh, there. If you go into their vineyards and you look at the vineyards next to them side by side, the organically beyond kind of farms like Ponte Canet or or Domaine Loire or some of these domains, the, the vineyards look wild and they look kind of a little bit unmanaged and a little bit rustic. But I think finally, when you go out into the market, and this is what I've always said, is that when the consumers start asking, how are you farming? What are you doing? Then the market will react. The biggest problem right now is that for larger businesses, there's all sorts of challenges that are limiting them from farming at a higher level and protecting the soil microbiome and the farm biology. And part of that is the economic divide. And so right now to farm at a high level, it's more expensive. And a bottle of Loire that costs Mousini that costs on current release, like $70,000 a bottle on wine searcher. It's crazy. They can afford to do every little thing that's that's needed. And so what you're saying is the smaller farmers can't. A lot of my friends, you know, are, are struggling to put food on the table for their families and put them with their kids through college. And so they also might not have experienced, we've gone through this chemical revolution and during this chemical revolution, instead of using hose and implements and technologies to get rid of grasses or to deal with different needs on the farm, we've gone to more chemical, easy, simple solutions, right? Well, and it's hard when, you know, maybe after high school, your father or family throws you the keys to the tractor and says, don't go to college, come learn from us, work on the farm. And then in walks a PhD from Monsanto and the PhD from Monsanto saying, hey, if you do this, that, and the other, and you spray this during the spring grasses and put in this herbicide and it's pre-emergent, and then you use this systemic, you're going to be in the vineyard half of the time. And so they're going, okay, well, What's the cost? Oh, it costs a lot less. Okay, that costs less. Oh, and by the way, for all the, the hippies that come in and say that organic's better for the planet, you're driving your tractor half the time that organic farmers are. So you're actually better for the planet because you're not burning more fossil fuel. So your carbon footprint is less. And so these guys are sitting there and they're going like, well, yeah, man, I'm in. And then they come back to their father or their family the next year and they say, look what we've been able to accomplish. They say, good job. You did a great work. All of a sudden, that farmer that didn't go on to learn kind of or find their own path or go do internships that got the keys, the tractor, or learned the passes from their father, have a really tight relationship with the chemical industry. And this is what led you to get involved with Monarch Tractor? This is a global problem that we're having on a micro soil microbiome farm biology level, and it needs to be corrected. And so that's where, you know, I again, never thought in a million years that I would be involved in a technology company or a tractor company. I certainly love tractors. I always have, but I got involved in this so that we could bridge those divides and we could solve these major pain points for farmers, farms, agricultural communities. It's been an unbelievable journey, but it all ties back to, for me, those journeys that I, I went on with my grandfather and kind of that same trip that he went on in 62 that lit the fire in his belly, lit the fire in my belly back in 2002 when he took me on that same journey. So that was around the time you finally joined the family business. But I'm curious, was it always assumed that you would? You know, my grandfather was kind of never pushed me to get into the family business. My father never. In fact, they did the opposite. If we wanted to join our family business, there was pretty hefty hurdles that we had to meet before we could join the family business because 
they were very clear that that it's not a family first company, that if you want to sit at the table in the cellar or sit at the table in the vineyard or on sales and marketing or whatever, that you had to be as good, if not better than the people that the, the team was interviewing. So it was intimidating. I want to talk about the Monarch Project before we jump into exactly what you're doing now. So when did the Monarch Project start? And when is that in juxtaposition to coming back to California and then making wine with your brother, Dante? It's called Rain, right? My gosh, yeah. So I was always making wine with my my brothers and sisters in the cellar back in the day at Robert Mondavi before 2004 when we we sold. And we didn't want to sell. It's a longer story there. But our summertime job in between school, we would work in the cellar and oftentimes we'd almost be able to finish harvest before we had to go back to school. So I was always in the cellar with Chiara and and, and Dante and Carissa and Dominic. And that was kind of our, our summer gig. We didn't begin rain until 2013. And it, it was it's a longer story because in 2004, my family sold Robert Mondavi Winery. It wasn't something that we wanted to do, but it, I look at it in this very serendipitous way, because my grandfather, Robert, was around to begin Continuum with my father, Tim. So that was in 04, 05. My father, I remember him telling us that, you know, Continuum's, it's one wine, one site, we're focusing at the highest level. And so he told us that, you know, I don't know if there's going to be a job here at the family business for you, that there was a good chance that that this, this new business that we were dedicating ourselves to, because it was my dad said, how do we take what we we did at Robert Mondavi and what my grandfather began in 1966 and take it to the next level? And he said, we have to find a single site. So a California Grand Cru focused on making a single wine at the highest level. And so we stopped making anything but that one wine from, from 2005 on. And when the economy crashed in 2008, my father called me up and said, Carlo, I, I, I think we might need some help talking about Continuum going out in the market. And so I got the job that I've been dreaming of my whole life to come work with my family. Wow, that was amazing. So this was your first real exposure to the economics of agriculture. I didn't see really the world of farming until we sold in 2004. And in 05, looking outwardly and really leading up to the beginning of rain, when I started looking at vineyards out on the coast and, and searching all over the place, and I was on this unquenchable thirst for, for knowledge of, of wine and so I was studying and traveling and walking every vineyard I could and asking every winemaker I could ask questions to and every farmer I could ask questions to. I was, I was just on a mission to learn. And along that, I started seeing more and more herbicides in, in vineyards. And I started wondering, why are people using herbicides when we know that it's a chemical and that you can you can use another you know implement to deal with? With the chemical, you can get rid of chemicals. You can completely get rid of a chemical. It's 100% gone. There's not like, oh, we're going to cut this by 30% because of precision ag. This is getting rid of an entire use of a chemical. It was that idea that inspired Carlo and Dante to create the Monarch Challenge in 2016. Their aim is to rid Napa Valley and Sonoma Coast of all herbicides and pesticides and encourage the region's farmers to embrace clean farming. He was inspired to launch the effort when he learned that since Roundup herbicide hit the market in 1974, the population of North America's monarch butterflies had been cut in half. I 
I grew up in Napa, Sonoma area. I saw monarch butterflies flying through every single year. It was like one of the great things. You just go run, like as a kid, chase the monarchs because they're just these beautiful orange and black and white butterflies. And when I learned about the correlation of the since 1974, which was the introduction of Roundup, to today, the monarch population of butterflies has gone from 4.4 million individuals of the Western monarchs that migrate from up in Canada down to Mexico, that the population has gone from 4.4 million individuals to this last count, this last winter through the Xerxes Foundation, Xerxes Society, down to 1,910 individuals in the state of California, and they are on the brink of extinction. So I started to think of the Monarch Challenge, and the Monarch Challenge was a movement to basically go out and, and, and form farms, just through education, because there's nothing worse than shaming farms. There's nothing worse than going out again, because everyone's doing the best that they can. This is, this is a business as well. And so to go out and say, hey, if you're a vineyard farmer and you sell fruit to a winery, if you have X spacing, so I did all the math and figured out if you were on a hillside or if you were flat and you're spacing, if you did these steps, your farming costs would probably increase by $500 or $1,500. And then if you took that and you divided that per acre out over the cost of your fruit and you said to the winery, look, we're going to go herbicide free. It's going to cost this much more. We're going to add that onto the top of your bill. Will you accept that? And so just write a path for the farmer to talk to the winery and the winery inversely to talk to the farmer. And so to create that conversation. And I went out and after this was back in 2016, when I began the Monarch Challenge with an incredible group of individuals. And after a couple of years, I was like, all we have to do is go talk about this and we'll, we'll accomplish this. You know, Napa, Sonoma, France, we'll have a, a global herbicide free wine community. At no problem with just this conversation. So how did the tractor fit in? The Monarch Challenge, incredible team, the advocates, the way we were able to get out and talk about the movement of getting away from herbicides started with just, it was full on and then we hit walls and the walls were, were tough. And so that's where, as you do, if you're stuck, you try to figure out how to get unstuck. And so as a farming community, we were truly stuck in this kind of conventional on a mass, mass and micro level. And so that's where I began this idea of, of a solution, which is Monarch Tractor. And that was really born because we're really fortunate here in California that, you know, right across from Sonoma, Napa and the San Francisco Bay, you have Silicon Valley, you have some of the most brilliant engineers on planet Earth, some of the biggest problem solvers, some of the most just incredible minds and people I've ever met. And one of the little light bulbs that went off was if you can drive these new autonomous vehicles, if you can take an, a Tesla, for example, one of the originators of all of this electrification, sustainability, and getting away from fossil fuel and into renewable energy. If you can take one of their cars at 70 miles per hour down a freeway, put it in autonomous mode and have it change lanes with all the craziness that's happening on a freeway, why can't you do the same thing on a tractor at two and three miles per hour? And so um, I began the search of finding engineers at that point in time to help solve this problem. And I knew it was going to be tough, but it was a lot tougher than I thought. A lot of the people that I met were not interested. They were, they were really into uh, this idea of autonomous vehicles, and that's where they wanted to spend their time. And then I got an introduction of a lifetime from a friend of mine to a, a good friend of his. And he introduced me to Mark Schwager, who's the president and co-founder of Monarch Tractor, who had come from actually Tesla in the very early days. And he had been working with 
Praveen Pinmetza, who's our CEO and one of the founders, and Dr. Zachary Omohundro, who's our chief technology officer and one of the founders of Monarch Tractor. And these guys are outside of the box thinkers. They are brilliant. They each are as the smartest individuals that, I mean, it's incredible the amount of innovation that they've solved outside of Monarch Tractor. And now they're taking all of the things that they've innovated from Mark's days at, at you know, Tesla and Romeo Power and Zooks and building, you know, gigafactories and Praveen solving, you know, aerospace, auto and agricultural technology problems and Zachary alongside with him. And now they're putting all of their energy into building this solution that we desperately need, that I've desperately been asking for. And the exciting thing is that the technology that we're building, which is Monarch Tractor, and we've deployed now a number of tractors and we're we're in the full ramp up, is that this tractor will solve the, the economic divide. Praveen has actually been on the show. So how did it come to be that you all got together in the same room with the same vision? That's my favorite thing about Monarch is that we all had concluded that this needed to happen independent of each other's influence. And someone like Praveen, who is as high octane and smart and successful as he is, for him to have come up with that independent of of my influence was one of the great moments where I I really knew that there was a big opportunity here because Praveen is a big thinker and he's one of the smartest individuals and a truly incredible CEO a dynamic CEO. I knew if he if he had come up with that on his own, that we were onto something. Because I, I really do, I, my focus has always been vineyards, seller, very different than anything on the business CEO side of things. But I've also been able to work with some of the great managers and CEOs of, of the world. And so I, when he had come to that conclusion on his own, I was it gave me a lot of confidence that we were going to make this happen. So what did it feel like to have these first conversations with the Monarch team? So the crazy thing about it is I had come up with this idea that we needed to solve this. There was a massive pain on so many levels that we needed to solve. We needed to automize and electrify and clean up our carbon footprint with farming and all that. That was independent of the influence from Praveen. Praveen came up with that independently because Praveen had been at going out and he's one of the more brilliant individuals I've ever met. He, he was solving, you know, aerospace problems, auto problems. But one of the other areas he was solving was, was agricultural problems. And so he was developing, you know, single use case implements that were, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars per unit. So he would, he would go to these big farms across the country and they say, hey, we need a potato transplanter or we need a romaine lettuce weeder or we need something else to, to automize this for, for our farm. And so he would go out and build it. And oftentimes they were, you know, over a million dollars, just under a million dollars, incredibly expensive single use case pieces of, of equipment. And he'd go out to the farm and now he would marry the technology to the tractor. And so he, you know, connect it up and then he'd say, okay, we need electrification. Let's get a generator. We need Wi-Fi. We need GPS. And so you're now taping all these things onto the tractor. And so he had said, well, this implement, if we could just make the tractor smart, we can take a lot of this off the implement, make the implement a lot less expensive, and you can do multiple things, not just one thing, not a single use case. And I wanted to find someone who could do this at, the, at a high level. So a friend, a mutual friend who has a vehicle company that's focused a lot on automation, I asked him if he 
knew of anybody. And he said, absolutely not. I'm, I'm battling in this massive market. It's a trillion dollar race to get to the finish line. And so there's, there's no way anyone I find I'm going to take. He said, but if I find somebody that doesn't make sense for what we're doing, I'll make that introduction. And about six months later, he called me up and he has a rule at his company that he doesn't hire his friends. And so he was college roommates with, with Mark. And so anyways, uh, called me up, introduced me to Mark. Next thing you know, I'm meeting Mark and Praveen. We are all finishing each other's sentences. Your relationship with the farmer, because at Monarch, you spend a great deal of time with the farmer. Describe what that experience is and how are you kind of changing their mindset and seeing the possibilities that can now be done as you electrify and bring this tractor to to their field? So my, my relationship with the farmers kind of, I treat it the same way that I want to be treated on my farm. And so we're farmer first. We want to be able to, you know, I, I always loved like a good wrench set. I love the idea of being able to fix and work on your own equipment, and all those things. But our, our relationship with the farmers is we want to be a solution for them. We want them to come to us to basically solve a lot of the problems that we have, whether it's one of the incredible challenges we face right now is finding a team of people that want to work in whether, so I guess it's the labor, the labor challenge that we we're facing right now. And I look at it from my family's perspective. You know, we have one of our all time greatest tractor drivers and farmers that I've ever been able to work with has been working with my father for over 33 years now. He's a master grafter. He's the guy who you want to put in the seat of the tractor to make important passes. And we've realized that this individual might not be with us forever that he might want to retire and, and, you know, have that wonderful chapter of, of, of his life soon. And so we, we've asked him to begin training individuals to try to get some other people that can hopefully have a long and prosperous career with us. And unfortunately, after, you know, three or four years of driving the tractor and doing a lot of this, they end up leaving because they, they feel like the job is, and it is, it's, after you've gone up and down one row, I don't care if it's 10 acres you're farming, 100 acres or a thousand, it's, it is incredibly monotonous. It's very, to be honest, scary because if you make a wrong turn and you take out some plants, it's, you just feel the, the weight and importance of your job and what you're doing. And so, and then putting on a hazmat suit and just all the dirtiness that comes with, with that. And so we want to be a solution to making farmers safer, healthier happier and more profitable at the end of the day so that we can continue to do what we love. And um, I see a major part of the profitability of farms as, as increasing the health of the soil microbiome. So making a, a farm that can continue to put out incredible crop after incredible crop. And that's just through incredible care of the soils and then also incredible care of the team, keeping your team healthy, keeping your team safe. And a big part of that would be getting rid of chemicals. That's either through, you know, not using some of the more maybe dangerous chemicals that are out there. That's obviously from removing them from being in part of the chemical spray. One of the things we wanted to do was to get rid of the hazmat suit and, and all of that. So there's just a number of things. But right away, for me, this was a product to basically solve the monarch challenge, which and help hopefully create when, you know, I know this might sound corny, but when butterflies are flying over as they're migrating down south. I would love it for the wine growing communities and the farming communities to be safe havens for them to land and not be an area where they they get trapped. And so that comes with just uh, 
you know, being able to deal with climate change, being able to de- deal with the chemicals on farms. And, and hopefully instead of, you know, right now, the, just the three factors that affect the modern butterflies is, is climate change. It's the chemicals in farming and it's migratory path disruption. And we can solve all three of those by being a first getting away from fossil fuel farming, accelerating towards renewable energy farming. So we deal with hopefully coming to some sort of climate neutrality as, as on, on farms to the best we can to contribute to that. The second is by dealing with the chemical revolution, getting away from the chemical revolution or the green revolution and going into a new revolution of clean farming. And so creating a sanctuary that those chemicals aren't present so that they can land and not, you know, come into contact with neonicotinoids or glyphosate or any of the bad chemicals in that regard. And then the third is kind of one and the same. And that is creating, instead of having migratory path disruption by chemicals, you now invite them to kind of come within the fringes of the farm because there's new places where they can migrate to and there's new homes for them. How do you relate to the tried and true Midwestern farmers that might not see California as being, you know, the, the heartland, although we live in, I'm native of California and I live in the, in this magnificent farm belt that we have, right? Is that conversation different with a Midwestern wheat farmer than it is like a California wine grower or lettuce grower, or is the same consciousness and sentiment? No, it's the same. All farmers want to make their farm more profitable, safer, and a happier, healthier place to be. Every single farmer I know, they'll do anything to do that as long as it doesn't come at the cost of the farm. Because at the end of the day, we as farmers have to put food on our table. We have to put our kids through college. We've got to take care of the farm. The farm has to sustain itself. And so the biggest and, and, and most common language of, of agriculture is profitability. And that has to be something that that is successful. The company has to be profitable. And then after that, of course, all the details that come are, are just steps and it's just the cherry on top. So we all speak the same language. We might talk a little bit differently about it, but we're all talking the same about the same thing. We want to be that conduit for the farmer that allows for them to connect over into the clean side. And, and I think we all as farmers want to do that. But right now, turning on one diesel tractor is like turning on 17 cars. And so even if we are farming organically or regeneratively or biodynamically, we are still, we still have that carbon footprint associated. So at bare minimum, we want to be able to mitigate that for the farmers that are already protecting their soils in such a beautiful way. And for the farmers that want to get away from the chemicals, we want to be a solution for that too. And you talked about labor issues, there's climate change, and in California we have fires and, you know, other natural disasters. Are there other things that that we should be more conscious about? I mean, what can we do better as individuals, if not farmers, but in respect of the industry and agriculture? Well, I think, you know, farmers are the most important people on the planet. If we don't have a healthy food system, then we don't even need doctors. We, we need farmers. And so, you know, I think that engaging with, with farms, I love farmers markets. I love being able to go there and like actually talk about whatever I'm buying from the farmer and learn about them and what they're doing and the practices and challenges they're facing. But I can just say on a global basis that farmers are having a very difficult time. 
Yeah, well, I, I personally passionately, I mean, growing up in California and always having been a backyard, you know, gardener and knowing that the importance of my ladybugs and the birds and even, you know, having been a bee farmer and, and had my own hives and all these, you know, kind of ecosystem components are so important. But I talked to my grocer, I talked to my, my produce guy, I know about him and his family and and I know oftentimes the source of where the food food is coming from because I go to a much smaller market. And that's really important to me, just, you know, in general, my own personal sentiment. But if you go back to when you were a child growing up, you know, going back to the early days that you shared with us, did you ever envision that your journey would just have such manifest into such a, a bigger drive well beyond just making wine? But now you're, you're leading this whole movement. You know, I feel so blessed to be able to make wine. It's it is what I think about when I'm going to bed and when I'm waking up and I love the art of farming and the art of making wine. And that's the thing that I want to do until I'm a hundred years old, if I'm so lucky. This solution, the Monarch tractor is something that has been one of those experiences of that, you know, you don't get to choose timing, timing chooses you. And I didn't, there was never a time in my life when I thought that I would be involved in a technology business or involved in trying to solve this, this challenge, but I feel like I have to see this through. I have this, the Monarch challenge has to succeed and for it to succeed, Monarch tractor has to succeed. And I've been fortunate. I, I cannot tell you how fortunate I've been to meet my co-founders because they are the ones making this all happen. And so I didn't ever expect this or, or plan for this but I feel incredibly grateful to be a part of the team and a part of the movement and a part of the solution of the Monarch Challenge. And so I'm, I see a really bright future in agriculture and it, it's not just in getting rid of the chemicals, it's in making farms more successful and more profitable and happier and healthier and all the fun things that come along with that. So the journey is just beginning too. And that's something my grandfather would say into his nineties. He'd say, you realize it's just the beginning. And I feel that that's never truer than it is right now. So that was Carlo Mondavi. He says he and his brother Dante inherited their grandfather's love of Pinot Noir, and they were inspired by the Pinots he made in the 70s and 80s. So when it came time to launch their own label, Rain, they decided to stay true to their grandfather and focus solely on the Pinot Noir grape, what is considered one of the most difficult varietals to grow and grow well. In just eight years, Rain has become one of the most highly regarded Pinots in the entire region exceeding the coveted 90 points plus rating. Before It Happened is produced by me, Donna Laughlin, along with Studio Pod Media. The executive producer is Katie Sunku Wood, and all episodes are written and developed by Jack Buer. Our show coordinator is Deanna Morency, with additional editing and music provided by Noda Lab.